The man on the screen is a man that John Newton heavily influenced. And so I wanted to give you an overview of someone who is really a a forgotten theologian uh, among us. He was a contemporary of Newton. And uh, for you book nerds out there, this is an 1834 edition of his uh, autobiography, or biography, sorry, from his son, John Scott. I got this in the mail the other day. I was hoping I I would get it in time. So if you want to uh, come up here and smell theology... You can. Um, who knows where that book has been? So if you're a germaphobe, just don't do it. Um, but also, I'll, I'll share some other books with you in just a minute. But before we get started, I want, I want to pray. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this day that you've made for us, this day that you have given for us, given to us as a refreshment to our souls for the mutual edification of one another, and for the glory of your name. Would you help us now on this time? Take a little moment to consider a man in history who was influential in many, many ways that we don't recognize, even in our own lives as Americans. So would you please bless our study? Give me clarity of thought. Give the hearers eager hearts to learn. In Christ's name I ask. Amen. Well, Jude, uh, we've been going through Jude, uh, and... One of the things I wanted to do in the, in the study of Jude was to bring in a character who was on the other side of the fence. So we've been learning how to contend for the faith. Jude says a lot of things about uh, what we ought to do, the attitude we ought to have in contending for the faith. And Thomas Scott is one of those men who would be on the other side of the fence with us. He was a man who, uh, as you'll find in just a moment, was in grave theological error. And so how Newton handled this man, I think, is very instructive for us. So um, Jude, again, was a letter uh, really written concerning how to contend for the faith. And it makes, uh, the letter makes it plain that Jude was a man who was eager to write about the common things among us, things that are common uh, among us in salvation but as, we cons- as we've considered its contents so far, we see really two things that we need to strive to imitate in Jude's letter. The first is a matter of orthodoxy. Jude was a man who was concerned about orthodoxy, right doctrine. Uh, what constitutes an error versus a heresy? And where do we draw the line regor- regarding orthodoxy? And once those categories are settled, we begin to find some balance in our mind uh, regarding theology what we can actually say is the truth of Scripture. And the second matter in Jude's letter is a matter of, we could say, decorum or finesse. And this is the art of contending. So we can have the facts, what we believe, but then we have to concern ourselves with the art of contending for the faith. The facts are what we say, and the art is how and when we say it. So, Um, why am I bringing Thomas Scott before us? What am I after here? In the history of the church, there's a really good example between these two men, between Thomas Scott and John Newton, on the facts of orthodoxy. Uh, And Scott is a a really uh, an unknown man to most of us. He was a 17th century Anglican minister. 
And he was a neighboring minister to one of my theological heroes, John Newton. And so their friendship and conversation over time gives us really a, a peek into uh, how to contend rightly for the faith. And Scott, as we will discover, was a very unlikely and provocative convert. Um, and Newton, a man Scott would not stand to be in the company with, in company with in public, uh, in Scott's own words, said of Newton, he was a very benevolent, disinterested man, meaning he didn't go looking for a fight, and he was inoffensive and a laborious minister. And so this is what I'm after in this short little biography on Thomas Scott. Uh, I need to see for my own self amazing grace worked out in the salvation of a lost man, but I also need to see the means by which that happens. Um, that, for me, is very useful, and I think that's one of the reasons God has given us certain historical figures. I want to know, as Samuel Miller records of this biography, how to argue with fraternity, with patience, with force, with practical appeal, with, as he says, disarming love, all the while being immovable in the truth. And that's our danger as we contend for the faith. We're, uh, as Luther would say, we're like drunk peasants on the donkey. We fall off on one side or the other. We're either too tough and just hacking people to death or we're too tender and we give a free pass. So we want to be balanced. We want to be both. And so this study for, uh, for a major part is for me. I want to be that kind of man Newton was because he modeled so much of who Christ was in his theological interactions. So I've got a few sources if you're interested. Uh, John Scott's autobiography of his father, The Life of Reverend Thomas Scott. Um, the Force of Truth, which is this book right here. It's, I don't know, maybe 10 bucks on Amazon. This is Thomas Scott's own account of his conversion. Uh, this has been very helpful for me in compiling the resources. And then also... John Newton's works, uh, put out by the Banner of Truth, Newton references Scott in many places. And you can see in Newton's biography um, this kind of secret thoughts of Thomas Scott in his diary. So it's, it's really, really good. So in the Force of Truth, in Newton's works, there were eight letters that were recorded between these two men. And we get to see, again, Newton's own little private thoughts in his diary and his works. It's, it's really good. I hope you guys enjoy this. So this is our agenda. We'll maybe do two to three uh, Bible studies on this, and I'll get to the reason why I'm doing a biography and Bible study in just a moment. But we'll talk about pre-conversion, his early life and ministry, what made this man an unlikely convert, and then for our final point today, we'll see John Newton enter Thomas Scott's life. So the second part is Scott and Newton's interaction, and the third part is post-conversion and some reflections on Thomas Scott's conversion. So, first of all, I just want to talk about why biography in a Bible study. Uh, you might be asking yourself that question. I think biography is warranted by Jesus. Luke 17, 32, Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. There's a dissertation for a biography on Lot's wife. That statement, I think, is enough for us. We're called to think about the lives of the ungodly. How much more those who have been redeemed? If we're to consider Lot's wife, how much more are we to consider those who have been saved by the grace of God? Secondly, biography gives us real-world examples of faith in action. So many times when we think about biblical texts in our own lives, 
we ask the question, how does it work? How does faith actually work in our lives? We want to put feet to our faith. And if you read Hebrews 11, you see these words like Abel offered, uh, Noah constructed, Abraham went, the people crossed the Red Sea, and so on. And so you see these examples uh, in the Scripture, and they're extremely helpful. And I think we could say of Hebrews 11, don't tell me, show me. Show me how to live in Christ. Thirdly, biography lets us in on the lives of ordinary sinners saved by grace, James 5, 17. Elijah was a man of what? Like passions, just as we are. So it helps us understand that God can use us too. Uh, It gets us into the context, the struggles, the fears, the concerns, and ultimately the triumph of Christ in the life of an ungodly man. Fourthly, according to Hebrews 12, 1, as it looks back on chapter 11, Hebrews 11, biography is designed to motivate us to holiness. Consider these words. Therefore, the Hebrews writer says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So as we consider those who have lived the life of faith before us, It's a motivation to holiness. It's a motivation to throw off the weight of the world. And then fifthly, according to Hebrews 12.2, as it looks back on chapter 11, we see the ultimate goal of considering any life of a saint of God is they ought to point us to Jesus Christ. Uh, Looking to Jesus, Hebrews 12.2 says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so these are some really short Uh, and pithy reasons why you should consider Christian biography. God does it in his word, and he does it for us. So we see Christ through the lens of Abraham. We see Christ through the lens of Moses. We see Christ through all those examples, and I hope that we'll see Christ through Newton and Scott's interaction. So if you're considering why we're doing biography and Bible study, there is my justification. So part one... Thomas Scott, pre-conversion. Scott was born February 4th, 1746 in a small farmhouse in Braytoft, Lincolnshire, England. You can see on the map, it's on the east side of England there. A very, very small town. Braytoft is a small parish on the eastern shore of England. And according to Scott's memory of his childhood, only had one church on the seashore. His father, John Scott, was a grazer, meaning a farmer, a sheep herder. He was a man of a small, feeble body, but uncommon energy of mind, vigor of intellect, by which he surmounted, as Scott records, in no common degree to almost a total lack of education. Now, regarding his education and his mother's involvement, Scott records this, quote, "...having principally by her been taught to read fluently..." And to spell accurately, I learned the first elements of Latin by age eight at a school two miles off. After the death of Scott's older brother in the Navy, Scott's father kind of purposed that his surviving son would have a better life than a soldier or a farmer. And from there, Scott spent much time in various schools until age 16. He was learning Latin there in hopes of becoming a doctor. That's what his father ultimately wanted for him. Now, Scott was a sharp guy, though he was a 
uh, a farmhand, and there's, you know, there's no dissimilarity there, but just to say he was an ordinary man with a very extraordinary intellect. Scott showed promise in his education, but in his own words, he squandered it because he loved to play. Uh, regarding those early days in school, he records this, sitting by the fireside reading, I affronted by no great offense a schoolfellow of as a violent passion as myself. When without my being at all aware of his design, he seized the large poker out of the fire and aimed a blow at my head, which must have proved fatal had not its force been broken by an intervening object. As it was, it inflicted a severe wound, which left a bald place on the top of my head ever after. So Scott was a rabble rouser. His students, he and his fellow students were rabble rousers. They would get into tufts and they would get into a lot of trouble. He says this of his own conduct of the, of the time. My own conduct at this period was as immoral as want of money, pride and fear of temporal consequences and a natural bashfulness would admit it to be. Except that in one thing I retained a sort of habit of my family and never learned to swear or take the name of God in vain unless sometimes when provoked to violent passion, there was no fear of God before my eyes. Scott didn't really have an, a, a deep religious upbringing, but there was no ignorance of God and religion in his upbringing. But he doesn't really seem to be under any conviction of sin until age 16. And he briefly apprenticed with a surgeon um, at that time, but he was dismissed because of just bad conduct. He was a terrible student. On that event, Scott records that the doctor was a man of great skill, but unprincipled in life, and was sure that the man, he was sure that this man was an infidel. So Scott looked at this, this doctor and the man who he was apprenticing under as just a faithless man. He was a godless man. Scott, however, and maybe you can relate to this in your own uh, journey to Christ, Scott related that this was a choice mercy in Scott's life at the time. Listen to how he records his interaction with this infidel of a doctor. Not that I learned any wisdom or self-government or submission by my deep and lasting disgrace and anguish, but for two reasons. My master thought himself not only irreligious, but in many respects immoral. He first excited in my mind a serious conviction of sin committed against God. Remonstrating with me on one instance of my misconduct, he observed that I ought to recollect it was not only displeasing to him, but wicked in the sight of God. This remark produced a new sensation in my soul, which no subsequent efforts could destroy, and proved I am fully satisfied as far as anything proceeding from man is the primary cause of my subsequent conversion. So here it is, this godless infidel doctor who sees Scott squandering his life away, giving the doctor all sorts of trouble by his bad character, He's rebuked by an infidel saying he's going to be under the wrath of God. And Scott says this produced some sort of kind of awakening in his soul at the time. Not conversion, but awakening in his soul. Scott says he had really no conviction of sin up until that point. And maybe you could trace your own um, journey to Christ in those steps. Did you have someone in your life who was almost an unseeming character that would speak truth to you. 
Scott records in great detail his sins and his sorrows. Maybe we could do the same as we think back on our own life. But could you also trace with joy those steps leading up to your conversion? Do you wonder with Scott at the remarkable and apparently trivial and unexpected means God uses to work in the salvation of sinners? Scott uh, was rebuked by a godless doctor, and it woke him up from his stupor. Um, but also, Scott records here, as he reflects back on his life up until this point, something I think that is helpful for uh, young people here today. Basically, he says, don't presume, young person, that you can somehow live a life of rebellion against God and square up with him later. Scott uh, said of himself, I'm an exception to the rule. Most people who live like Scott go down the tubes. Don't flatter yourself, he says. As age progresses, there are few whose hearts are softened and who turn to God. Many young people grow up and sink into ruin unnoticed, from which there is no return. So as we consider Scott's life very briefly up to this point, maybe it should stir our hearts to think about not only if we are saved, the, the thankfulness we ought to have that we are saved, but also as a young person, consider your own need for Christ. Consider the fact that God does not owe you time or patience or grace. So he says this, Until the 16th year of my age, I do not remember that I was ever under any serious conviction of my being a sinner, in danger of wrath or in need of mercy. Nor did I ever during this part of my life that I recollect offer one hearty prayer to God in secret, being alienated from God through the ignorance that was in me. I lived without him in the world and as utterly neglected to pay him any voluntary service as if I had been an atheist in principle. So from age 16 to 26, you know, Scott apprentices with this, with this doctor. He gets kicked out for bad behavior. From 16 to 26, 10 years, Scott labors with his father in the fields. And his mindset at the time was to inherit his father's farm uh, and labor basically as a farmer until the end of his life. But he, he records this about that decision, quote, the discontent which corroded my mind during several of these years surpasses description. And it soured my temper beyond its natural harshness, thus rendering me a great temptation as well as trial to my father and those around me, to whom I generally behaved very disrespectfully, not to say insolently. He goes off to school he studies Latin. He's got a mind to learn, but he blows it because of terrible behavior. He comes back as a farmer with his father, and he says, it just ate me alive. The discontent of my situation in life ate me alive. It was a trial to my father, and I was just disrespectful and insolent toward those around me. Scott was a wandering, discontent, and bitter soul whose life reflected the same. All of this remained the same until April of 1772. He was born in 1746 up to April 1772 when Scott was fed up with the life of a grazer, desperately attempted to escape that life. And he records, I avowed my intention to escape being a farmer in almost the worst manner possible. He was a, a man of 26 years of age. He had no prospects. 
He had really uh, ruined his reputation. Here he is as a farmer, hating his life as a farmer. And so he has this idea to just enter the ministry, do anything to get out of being a farmer. He records it this way. After a long, wet day of incessant fatigue, I deemed myself, and perhaps with justice, to be causelessly and severely blamed. And I gave full vent to my indignant passions, and throwing aside my shepherd's frock, declared my purpose no more to resume it. I set off for Boston, where a clergyman resided with whom I had contacted with some acquaintance. By conversing with him on common matters, when he came to do a duty at my brother's village and took refreshment at his house. Scott had an older brother who was mildly religious at the time. To this clergyman, he continues, I opened my mind with hesitation and trepidation, and nothing could well exceed his astonishment when he heard my purpose of attempting to obtain orders into the ministry. He knew me only as a shepherd and asked if I knew Greek or Latin. He took down a Greek New Testament off the shelf and put it in my hands. Without difficulty, I read several verses, giving both the Latin and English rendering, and he purposed to return again next week with the archbishop and introduce me to him. Scott returns home to tell the news and records that his friends and family thought he'd lost his mind. He, he, some tried to talk him out of it. Uh, said that, they said that preachers were poor and ridiculed in the community. Others just kept silent in disbelief. Still others reminded him of abandoning his father in the farm. Scott persisted, however. He records, my attempt to obtain orders had been widely made known in the neighborhood, even much beyond my sphere of personal acquaintance. And it had excited much attention and astonishment with no small degree of ridicule. No one believed this man could be fit for the office. He was an infidel. He was a, he was a faithless man. So Scott eventually left for Boston, had many meetings with the clergy at the time, and they set him up to kind of improve his Greek or Latin to see if he would, he would stand the test. Scott somehow secured a meeting with the Bishop of London to inquire about being ordained as a minister, and the bishop saw what everybody else saw. Uh, he just put a complete halt on Scott's pursuit and required him two things. Get a letter from your father saying uh, you ought to enter the ministry and get a recommendation from any clergy in the neighborhood who knows you. And Scott said his heart sank. There's just absolutely no way, number one, my father would ever recommend me. And number two, he says, I didn't know six uh, clergymen who would ever even say they wanted to know me. Um, he says, I was not personally known by half a dozen clergymen of the description required and my attempt was utterly reprobated by every one of them. He approaches them, and all of them are like, you're insane. There's no way I'm going to give you a letter to enter the ministry. And they said, I was, I was in a high degree presumptuous. This raised the spirits of my relations, my, my family members. And the sentiment exp expressed by my brother was that of the other branches of the family. So he says, my brother expressed what everybody else in my family thought. And here's what his brother said. I wish my brother had not made the attempt, but I cannot bear to have it said that one of our name undertook what he was unable to accomplish. His family was just embarrassed at him. He comments that if, he, if the decision were up to his father, there could be absolutely no hope. And so defeated, he walks 20 miles home, grabs a sheep shear, and just starts shearing some sheep. 
So he's just, you know, loathing himself right now. And all of his brothers and sisters, they all gather together uh, along with his mother and they appeal to his father. They see that this, this guy's a wandering soul. He's an embarrassment to the family. And after much pressure, he gets a letter from his father. And you can kind of detect the tone as you read about Scott's life, the, the despair of his father. Uh, his son is 26. He has absolutely no interest in the farm and has no future prospects. And his father sees he has a mind to learn, however. And so this was a fork in the road for Scott. His father doesn't sign that letter. There's a lot of things that happen in our own history that don't happen. And so you can see the, the providential circumstances by his family putting pressure on his father. Just five months after the crisis of leaving home and this desperate uh, consent of his father and a miracle uh, recommendation by the vicar of Boston, um, Scott receives his papers. He was examined and ordained into the gospel ministry. So the man loses his mind as a farmer, runs home, uh, runs to Boston, tries to get uh, ordained. They send him back. And within five months of all of this happening, the man is examined. Uh, and if you read about his examination, it's, uh, it's, it's a little comical. But he is ordained into the gospel ministry. Now, Scott does not underestimate this matter. And I'm, I'm lingering here for a minute because I'm setting up our interaction with Newton. Scott says this, While I was preparing for this solemn office, I lived as before in known sin and in utter neglect of prayer. My whole preparation consisted of nothing else but an attention to those studies which were most immediately required for my reputably passing through the previous examination. In other words, he had no interest in theology broadly, but just answering the questions just enough to get by the examination. And thus, after some difficulty, with a heart full of pride and all manner of wickedness, my life being polluted in many unrepented, unforsaken sins, without one cry for mercy, one prayer for direction or assistance, or a blessing upon what I was about to do, and having concealed my real sentiments under the mask of general expression, so as he was examined, he was very um, political and general in his answers, and having subscribed articles directly contrary to my then belief, and having blasphemously declared in the presence of God and of the congregation in the most solemn manner, sealing it with the Lord's Supper, that I judge myself to be inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost to take this office upon me, not knowing or believing that there was a Holy Ghost. On September the 20th, 1772, I was ordained. Here's a man who confessed belief in the triune God and the Holy Ghost, living in sin, absolutely neglect of prayer, and he's ordained into the gospel ministry. Scott passed the ordination test with high compliments and an unholy heart. He basically said he entered the ministry for three reasons. Number one, it will be less laborious and more comfortable. I think anybody who's been in the gospel ministry knows that's not the case. Number two, the expectation of more leisure to read. And number three, that he would, by his proud conceit, advance himself in the literary world. He says all of his conduct in ministry until conversion was geared around those motives. And as we will see in his pride, 
he sought to pick theological fights. He was a man who liked to squabble. So what did Scott record as his mindset when entering the ministry? I think you're going to be surprised. As to the nature of God, he was a Socinian. Who knows what Socinianism is? Yeah, so Socinianism basically rejects the Trinity. It's Unitarian. One God, one person. It rejects the deity of Christ. It states that he only appeared to be divine, and he was not the eternal Son of God, but only became the Son of God in time. Scott confesses that during the short time of preparation for ordination, he drank down the poison of Socinian commentaries. Sadly, it was one of his own father's commentaries. He was Socinian. As to the nature of man, he was Pelagian. What does Pelagianism believe about the nature of man? They were basically a blank slate. We're born neither good nor bad. We don't have the original stain of Adam upon us. And Scott believed in such a benevolent God that, quote, if I fell short of heaven, I should be annihilated and never be sensible of my loss. He was an annihilationist. He didn't even believe in hell. As to the nature of salvation, he was an Arminian. He believed in the utter freedom of the human will to choose or reject the good. And as to personal holiness, you've seen a little bit of it here. He utterly neglected prayer from conviction of hypocrisy and could scarcely bring himself to say anything more than, God, have mercy on me. This was the man who entered the ministry at 26 years old. He was, he was an intelligent man, but he was a proud man. He was not a humble and converted man. He was not even an outwardly polished man but a fed-up, bitter farmer who was full of himself, his abilities, leaning on the arm of the flesh, and at best, he had a faint awakening of sin but no conversion of soul. This is John Newton's theological neighbor. This is the quote-unquote pastor down the street. Okay. Scott remarks, I never think of this daring wickedness without being filled with amazement that I am out of hell. He looks back on his life, he's like, there is just, it amazes me that I'm not in hell right now. He did all of that with an unconverted heart. So what made this man an unlikely convert? Because he was converted. And you've probably been affected by some of his literature. And I will get to that in just a moment. His religious opinions, what made him unlikely to be converted? His religious opinions, Socinian, Pelagian, Arminian, he says, very few have recovered from that abyss of error. Scott trusted wholly in the power of reason. If you know anything about the Socinian controversies of that time, they were men who put reason over revelation. They believed in the power of the intellect. Full of confidence in my cause, he says, and the arguments with which I was prepared to support it, I was eager to engage in controversy with the Calvinists and entertain the most sanguine hopes of victory. As to his natural spirit and temper, he says this, few persons have ever been more self-sufficient and positive in their opinions than I was. Fond of excess of entertaining argument, I never failed on these occasions to, be, 
to betray this peculiarity of my character. I seldom acknowledged or suspected myself mistaken and scarcely ever dropped an argument till either my reasoning or obstinacy had silenced my opponent. He just loved to drill down and beat down his opponent. He loved the argument. Scott was a highly arrogant, argumentative, and bullish man. Ever met somebody like that? I see that in myself in theological war. What about his situation in life? He had a growing family. He had gotten married right after ordination. He didn't have a lot of money, and he had zero expectations in life. Now, if you know one thing about money, it will make you temper your actions and your words, and it did, it did Scott. He befriended those who gave him advantage in life. He avoided the Calvinistic doctrine because he says, quote, embracing them would probably deprive me of these prospects of preferment. In other words, all his friends who had money would abandon him if he said he was a Calvinist. Regarding his character, I was ambitiously and excessively fond of that honor which comes from man. He loved the praise of men and considered the desire of praise as allowable, nay, laudable, something to be sought after. And his rejection of, quote, Methodism. Scott rejected even associating with anyone in public who would associate himself with the term, quote, unquote, Methodism. Now, Methodism in this time was not what we think about like the United Methodist Church. Uh, Methodism in his time was a term synonymous with Calvinism and the doctrines of the Reformation. George Whitfield was a Methodist. So if you read that, it's kind of a pejorative term. Uh, John Newton was accused of being a Methodist, a fanatic. He said, I had no more thought of becoming what the world calls a Methodist than turning Mahatman. Scott despised the doctrines of grace so much that he can no more think of himself being a Calvinist than a Muslim. That's how much he hated the doctrines of grace. Now, pause. Ask yourself if you would attempt to engage a man of this mindset. Would you even come within 100 miles of associating with a man like this? Don't, let's not flatter ourselves, okay? Let's be honest here. Let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. How many of us would have little patience or even worse, interest in conversing with a man like Scott? I would say probably two out of this whole room. Very, very few of us would. Well, not John Newton. Enter Mr. Newton. Newton was Scott's fellow curate. A curate is someone who had the responsibility of taking care of souls. That's all that word means. Newton is in Olney. Scott is in Ravenstone. And there are two and a half miles between them. Scott was unambiguous about his thoughts on Newton's doctrine. Scott considered him a rank fanatic. And in his own words, quote, I felt an eager desire of entering into a religious controversy, especially with a Calvinist. And so upon meeting Newton for the first time, Newton's doctrine was no secret to anyone around him. In a room full of clergy, Newton go, or Scott goes for him. Argumentative, exchange, 
exchanging blows with Newton, drawing the attention of everyone in the room. Scott wanted a fight, and he got it. But I don't think he expected the results. In this interaction between Newton and Scott over several years, Newton gives us a master class in contending for the faith, the, the results of which changed Scott forever for the kingdom of God. It helped shape English missions and American religious thought and would put Scott in influential contact with renowned names such as William Wilberforce, John Ryland, Andrew Fuller, and pioneer missionary William Carey. Carey would later remark of Scott as Scott neared death, if there be anything of the work of God in my soul, I owe it much to his preaching when I first set out in the ways of the Lord. How in the world do we get from what we just saw to William Carey saying, I owe what I owe in the Lord, my first steps, to a man of the caliber of Thomas Scott. That, that bridge is gapped by a man like John Newton. And there is where we will leave our study. Until next time, I love cliffhangers. There's one for you. So any questions before we close out? That's right. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. So it's like First uh, Timothy three. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Everybody outside was like, "No way could this guy ever be a pastor? He was he was a terrible person." And yeah. So, what's that? Absolutely. Well, I hope I hope as we go through this a little more, I can I can highlight those salient points in Newton that give you some things to think about when you're contending with other people who don't agree with you. And I don't even agree with myself most of the time. So I have to contend even here. But um, this, is a, this is a really good example of the tenderness of John Newton with a man who I think most of us would probably just write off if we were honest. So any other questions? If not, y'all come up here and smell some theology. Let me, uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll close out our time together. Lord, we thank you for this brief introduction to Thomas Scott and John Newton and their life. It highlights and begins to highlight the marvelous grace that you show to sinners. Lord, a man can come to you twisted, mangled, deformed by sin, and you receive him. Repentance and faith wash him clean. The blood of Christ wash him clean. And you shape him up and you renew his mind and you make him useful in your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be patient laborers, contenders for the faith, and help us as we go along in this study to learn from our brother John Newton. May we, may we be humble to do these things in Christ's name. Amen.